Hello, I'm Chris Kreitschew, and this is Neurostation, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is part one of an interview with Sean Griffin on the development and release of Diesel 1.0. Welcome back to the show, Sean. It's good to have you back on. Thanks. It's good to be back. So listeners will have heard Sean's sort of story of how he got to Rust and some of the things that got him going with Diesel originally. And by the time this episode comes out, all fingers crossed and whatnot, Diesel 1.0 should be out. So I figured it would be nice to talk about that and sort of hear how the Diesel journey has gone and what 1.0 means and entails and all of that. So how has Diesel gone in the last almost two years since we first talked about it? Uh, the last two years have gone well. Um, you know, the core team has grown. The core team is now three people. There are, I think, seven people with commit access. It's been interesting seeing the project grow to a size where, like, I can just go away for, for weeks at a time. And it, you know, runs itself now because there are enough people involved who I trust to take care of the project for me that uh, I don't need to be the, you know, I don't need to be around right. all the time, which is good. I've never had a project that uh, I've personally started that's that's made it that far. So that's been really uh, interesting to watch. You know, in terms of features, obviously, it's grown quite a bit. I think the last time I spoke to you, Diesel only supported Postgres. So that's probably the biggest uh, between between that version. Uh, February of 20 of 2016 would have been 0.5. Oh, wait, no, 0.5 did add SQLite support. Never mind. So you had just barely done it when we last spoke. Uh, we now also support MySQL. Uh, you know, going from being a Postgres-only library to supporting um, every major open source backend is probably the biggest difference between 0.1 and 1.0. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, it, I, I don't know. I don't know that there's any any specific things to go into in terms of features. Like, it's just, it's evolved a lot. Um mm-hmm. I guess, you know, one of the other big differences, we work on stable. We don't have any, there's no part of diesel that requires nightly, not even optional parts. Oh, yes. That's good. It is. It's it's painful at times. But. <laughs> so I was thinking it might be interesting then to talk through three things. One, what growing the community around it has looked like. Two, what the process, painful or otherwise, of adding some of those features, especially support for multiple backends has been. And then... Three, what it was like to be part of the drive to get some of those uh, custom-derived macros and and some of the things around the foundation laying for procedural macros in place, given sort of the course you just outlined for what it took to get here. Mm -hmm. With the first of those, what was the process of this community growth like? Well, so there's a couple of things. Um, The first was that I wanted to make sure that there was a good place to ask for help and support that was accessible. And so very specifically, not IRC. <laughs> yeah. IRC, regardless of, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for, for all of the hate mail that I just got you by saying I didn't want to use IRC. <laughs> so much. But, um, IRC, regardless of, of what web clients exist or how easy you can make it to, to join a thing, um, IRC is still very, very intimidating to people who don't already use it. I also wanted something that had history and support and search out of the box without me having to fiddle with getting a, a, a bot going. 
Oh, and, and being free is also uh, a big upside. <laughs> yeah. So that, le- that left basically Slack to a certain extent since they only saved 10,000 messages. And that can go by awfully quickly. <laughs> yes. So uh, so we ended up using Gitter, which is, um, I don't think Discord was, e- was necessarily a thing back then, or if it was, it was not nearly as popular. Uh, I, w- I might use Discord today if I were making the same if I were making the same decision. Um, you know, I say that like it's oh I can't switch, but it's all it's it's also not worth <laughs> switching. Right, migrating a community off of one platform to another is a little bit painful. I think that's the biggest thing though is is having an accessible place for people to come ask for help, listening to people's concerns, feature requests, issues. Yeah, I guess just generally being accessible to people uh, it was the was the biggest part of growing the community around it. And, and of course, making a useful thing that people wanted to use. Right. That's the most important one. That was what that was where SQLite support actually came from, because uh, originally I was very adamant. This is only ever going to be a po- this is only ever going to support Postgres. Uh, I don't see any reason that you should be not using Postgres and I don't want to support anything else. And then somebody and, and I closed tons of issues like, would you support MySQL? Uh, and like, do you have a reason that we should support MySQL over Postgres? And like, well, I prefer to use MySQL. And I, I would just answer, well, I prefer not to support MySQL. So there you go. <laughs> but eventually somebody raised the point of uh, given Rust's niche and SQLite being the only embedded database available, there actually are valid, you know, legit use cases for SQLite that Postgres is never going to be able to fill. And so that led to SQLite support. And that, was, and that was purely just like, I guess, from keeping an open mind. And when somebody brought something to the table other than just, I like SQLite more than Postgres, uh, you know, <laughs> we listened and then did all the work to, uh, to add it. And then eventually, once you, know, once you support two backends, it's not that hard to go from two to N. Right. So I eventually just caved from the volume of people asking for my SQL. <laughs> Zero to one is super hard. One to two is harder than zero to one i think yeah it is because you have to you find all the places where you coupled in all your assumptions about things and say oh i can't assume this crap (laughs) right exactly it would have it would have been uh it would have been easier to go from zero to two than go from one to two um but yeah if i remember correctly when we added my sql support uh the only code that needed to change that wasn't like just adding my sql specific stuff the only thing that needed to change was I was previously assuming that all backends would be transmitting uh, numbers as network endian, mm. uh, and MySQL is uh, native endian of whatever endianness the client is, and performs no checks to make sure that the client and server are the same endianness. Huh. At least that's what libmySQL client does. I actually don't know MySQL's wire protocol well enough. Anyway, that was that was the only thing I had to I had to to change uh, to support MySQL that wasn't just adding MySQL stuff was um, removing the assumption that everything was network endian. But that was that was very easy to add. Because the byte order crate is structured in a way that makes making something like that generic super easy. Good work, byte order crate. Yeah, yeah. My SQL was much less interesting than 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 adding SQLite support. Um, I that makes at least sense. in terms of API. My SQL was actually very painful from a testing point of view. Hmm. We actually still have a ton of tests that don't run on My SQL at all. Uh, and this again just comes from I wrote our test suite back when we only supported Postgres, and so I had like. The test schema, which is what most tests were written against, but occasionally I would do stuff that needed schema that was like just for this one test. Uh, and I didn't really want to have, um, you know, a, a persistent schema of like 80 bazillion tables, each one given weirdly unique names. Uh, or, or like when I'm testing insertion and how it behaves with different things, I want to have the same schema, but occasionally change the, you know, whether a column uh, has a default value or what the default value is. Mm-hmm. And so Postgres, like, that's fine. You can just modify schema all you want inside of a transaction. 
Uh, MySQL not only doesn't support modifying schema inside of a transaction, it implicitly commits the transaction. Oh. <laughs> uh, which is really confusing to me as opposed to like erroring. So there's a bunch of tests that we just straight up have to skip uh, on MySQL um, because they modify schema in ways that just aren't going to be supported. And then our test we also have to run with Rust test threads equals one because MySQL is really prone to deadlocking in the way that we insert things. And I never quite figured out why, but like it's mm. the only backend that deadlocks on this. So um, from that point of view, it was very painful. But those were all things that... Uh, you know, affect me, not so much affect our users or even our contributors for the most part. So as your number of contributors went up, how did you think about the process of adding core team members, contributors with the ability to commit directly to the repo, et cetera? Yeah. So we sort of have a hierarchy that uh, I stole from Rails. I know Ember uses the same one, which is basically just not every project separates the concept of a committer from a core team member. And uh, basically, the idea is that that just because you uh, are somebody we trust to write code like unsupervised doesn't necessarily mean that 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 you've qu- you're quite at the point where you should be one of the core decision makers on the project. Right. So committer, basically, if you continuously write a lot of good stuff, you'll end up getting commit, especially especially even if it's just you do a lot of good code review or you tend to answer questions a lot in Gitter, just whatever, you know. In whatever capacity, if, you make, if you're making contributions to the project, you'll end up getting added to the committer team just to recognize your contributions and to encourage you to keep making good contributions. Yeah. Core team, I don't know that there's there's like an obvious, uh, like, this is how it happens. But ultimately, mm-hmm. it just comes down to somebody being involved with the project for a long period of time in such a way that myself or one of the other core team members, you know, really comes to trust that person in, uh, and rely on that person in ways that are that are deeper than than for a committer. Yeah, and that's really I mean the di- the difference between them is is purely symbolic. Uh that said, I do uh, actually it's the the one practical difference is that um only core team members uh can release new versions of the crate. So everybody has commit access on GitHub, not everybody has push access for crates.io. Exactly. That makes good sense. So we already started dipping into some of it with the discussion around SQLite and MySQL. What, what if any other major sort of technical challenges did you good people have along the way as you worked toward the 1.0 over the last couple of years? So I don't know that there have been too many deeply technical challenges other than mm-hmm. self-imposed ones. <laughs> like probably one of the most complicated parts of diesel is how we handle prepared statement caching. Uh, and that's just because I thought it would be cool to, to cache prepared statements based off of uh, a type identifier rather than uh, based off of a SQL string, um, which is cool because it lets us skip the query builder uh, for most queries most of the time. But uh, that adds a lot of complexity. But that's like I said, that was a technical challenge that was purely self-imposed. If we just did prepared mm-hmm. statement caching the exact same way as every other ORM out there. <laughs> where you know we run the query builder, we use the SQL string as the as the uh, hash key, then that would be fine. Our biggest struggles have always been around error messages, error messages, and and, and documenting common pitfalls that are things that we just straight up can't change. Uh, like one of the, the more common ones that comes up that is documented on the table macro, but nobody looks there. Uh, basically, so. This always comes up and the features are named around table size, even though this has nothing to do with table size per se. But basically, we have a bunch of traits and we need to implement these traits for uh, tuples of various sizes. And so the number we picked by default is 16. 
And I think it's 16 because at least at the time, that was the number that Rust used for implementing certain traits for tuples of of uh, various sizes. And so the reason that 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 this always comes up with table is that the place that most people encounter it is the, uh, they have a table with 17 columns. Uh, <laughs> right. And so they try to, uh, you know, run a query with it. And then it'll be like expression is not implemented for, uh, you know, tuple of all of these various types. We're actually probably going to up it to 26 by default. That's our large tables feature right now. Uh, because mm. compile times in Rust have improved enough in the last two years that there's not much of a perceivable difference between um, the compile times for for supporting 16 element tuples and supporting 26 element tuples. Hmm. Uh, then we have huge tables, which um, ups the uh, number to 52. And the difference in compile times, the reason that's not enabled by default is because the difference in compile time between that uh, and without it is like uh, 10 times higher. Ooh. Yeah, you don't want that <laughs> unless you need it. Right. And if you need support for more than 52 element tuples, basically you have to open an issue on diesel. <laughs> yeah. Why is your table this large? That, so that's, that's the funny thing. There was actually a pull request, which I uh, like became a drama point a few days ago, actually. But um, I didn't even look at what the pull request was. It had been open for a while. I, had just, I just realized when the person closed it, it was ad- adding support for even larger tables. <laughs> uh, but they closed it because they're like, yeah, also just people shouldn't have tables this large. <laughs> Fun fact... The reason that large tables went up to 26 was I had an editor macro that I used to add new lines to this macro invocation, and it basically involved incrementing letters, and so 26 is the number of letters in the alphabet, <laughs> and so that was the most I could do without having to redo my editor macro. And then 52, because same thing, I, you know, changed, the, made right, the one-letter things, two-letter things, and then my editor macro didn't know how to change, you know, didn't know to change AZ to BA. <laughs> so I stopped at, at 52. Uh, I was going to ask. So, and I figured alphabet uh, because I wasn't seeing a good way to get playing cards in there. But uh, play, yeah, playing cards would have been another. Although I would have, uh, I would have done 54 because, hey, jokes are always wild, man. It's true. It's true. So self-imposed costs along the way. I will not lie and say I've never been there and done that on anything I've implemented. Right. I mean, you got to have fun with with projects like this, right? Yeah. You mentioned you've got the major open source backends. Is there any, I imagine you've had requests for, are you considering or what would the process be like if people wanted or needed to support SQL Server or Oracle? Right. So there, we're not going to be adding support for any other backends to Diesel itself. That said, Diesel is very specifically structured so that you can add support for additional backends without having to have them be in diesel itself. Uh, in fact, that was originally my plan was I was never going to support when I had SQLite support, I was never going to support MySQL. I would happily help somebody make a MySQL adapter, but I didn't want it in <laughs> diesel itself. And of course, I, you know, that didn't happen. I added MySQL support. Uh, <laughs> but but right, yeah, so basically, I would love to see a SQL server and an Oracle adapter out there. and I'm, And I'm happy to help somebody implement that. But those are both backends that are difficult to test against, difficult for contributors to right. get installed, uh, and just aren't things that I want to support in Diesel itself. I don't want to maintain it, but I'm certainly I will certainly help somebody implement it. And uh, you know, the only place that you can't really extend from the outside is Diesel CLI because the way and 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 uh, in first schema for that matter, because basically the way that works is it looks at your database URL, tries to figure out which backend you you are connecting to based on the features you compiled it with and the structure of the, mm-hmm. of the URL you gave us. And then all of its code is basically generic. 
but it has to be written as a giant uh, pattern match of like, if it's this backend, call this function with, you know, uh, and, and the functions do have to do different things, like how you go about resetting a database varies, varies by backend, uh, how you go about creating a database varies by backend. Running migrations doesn't vary, but again, it still has to be, we still have to, you know, destructure this uh, connection. Our connection right. ob- uh, uh, trait is not object safe. Oh, sorry, I put it. We couldn't. We couldn't have. Basically, we uh, internally, when we look at your URL, we we basically have this. E- we return this enum, which is like you know MySQL, MySQL connection, Postgres, Postgres connection, SQLite, SQLite connection, and we can never have a method on that that returns reference to connection because connection is not object safe. So even if even if the code that we're running is the same for all three backends, we still have to anyway. Um, I'm happy to if somebody adds a- another backend. I'm happy to add like the 10 lines required mm, mm-hmm. to optionally depend on their crate and call code from their crate if the URL matches, you know, the right structure. Right. Uh for for that backend, but that's that's the extent of the code that I want for supporting uh any specific backend other than the three we support now in diesel proper. That makes sense. Um you know, that might change in the future if there's some fancy new backend that that we all really like and 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 that we want to support. But the big th- the big thing about supporting in diesel versus having it be a third party crate is that we have to maintain it. And a small team, three core members and seven contributors, still not a lot of hands to go around for all of that. So Well, it's also just like bugs aren't gonna get picked up unless we're personally using it. That makes sense as well. So can you define for listeners who may not be familiar with the term object safe and how that's in play here sure so um a trait being object safe basically just means that you can stick it behind what's called a fat pointer and what specifically a fat pointer is or how it works is completely irrelevant (laughs) um but basically a trait object works like an object in most other object-oriented programming languages i guess another way another way to think of it is in java right you don't say you don't uh say i take t where t implements some interface you just say i take this interface right and the way that works behind the scenes, right, is your Java object has a list, uh, basically what is uh, effectively a hash map of all of its methods. It's not actually a hash map in Java, but in Ruby, it's a hash map. I think in Python, too. Yep, it is. Uh, how it's implemented, again, is irrelevant, but there's some place where it has, like, here are all of the methods on, on this uh, object, and here is, uh, here is where the implementation of that method lives. And so when you take a reference to some trait, uh, or box of some trait, you're taking what's called a trait object. So you're uh, rather than uh, taking some type where this type implements, you know, whatever whatever trait, you're now just taking a thing that is uh, again a, basically a map of method name to implementation of that method. But there are a couple of caveats to that. Number one, the uh, if there are any associated types on the trait, you have to specify the exact type. Uh, number two. The trait itself has to be object safe, which means it can never take self by value because uh, you your object is now unsized uh, because it doesn't know the exact type. So it doesn't know how big it is. So it can only ever live behind a pointer because the pointer is going to have additional information of how big right. it is. So you can never take self by value. Uh, and then you also cannot have any generic methods. Mm. So any methods on the trait have to then also be taking trait objects rather than rather than taking T where T implements some trait. In the case of uh, connection in diesel, there are two associated types. One's called backend. That one would be fine to specify. The other one is um, the other one is an internal type called transaction manager, which I don't want anybody to have to care about. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, no, so number one, if you wanted to take if you wanted to take a trade object of connection, you'd have to. And actually, we couldn't even take a trade object here in in uh, in this case where we wanted to have it return a reference to connection where connection could be for multiple backends, right? Because uh, the backend would have to be the same type for all of them. Uh, but then also every method on connection is generic. 
none of the public methods on connection are generic, but all the important methods for diesel internally <laughs> are all generic. Are generic. Right. Because, of course, you don't want to have to reimplement those for every backend. Right. Well, I mean, but also, uh, you know, diesel's very much designed to to be zero cost. Mm-hmm. Trade objects are not zero cost because once you're, uh, once you're taking a trade object, if you take type T where T implements some trait, you know, actually, I, I, I'm not going to let's not let's not go into because this will take this will take ages. <laughs> um, uh, I gave a talk at RustConf about about this concept. It's called monomorphization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a very it's very, very important for compiler optimizations. Mm-hmm. And when you take a trade object, you inhibit monomorphization. So um, uh, that would be a non-starter for diesel because that would that would make diesel greater than zero cost. Oh, no. And there'll be a link to that talk in the show notes. So then my second question was something I've thought about a lot with systems like diesel it seems like it's much harder with Rust, maybe not impossible and not really just with Rust, but with languages like it, compiled languages, to do the kind of dynamic, hey, this thing implements this interface, just load it in and run with it that you might do in a Ruby or a Python or possibly with reflection in something like C Sharp. Does that seem like a fair characterization to you that it's just harder with a Rust or a Haskell or one of these? No, um, no, but there's, uh, so if I wanted to have it be like, I would just dynamically load in the, you know, diesel CLI support for, um, for SQL server, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, you can definitely dynamically load a shared object file, right? Like that's not, that's not, that's not a problem. Um, but again, every, for that to work, none of the functions that we're dealing with could be ah. generic. They would have to be things which have the same interface for every single backend. So right. if if it were just, I need a function, um, it, you know, if, if it were just, I call a function that has a, a defined name or follows some, you know, conventional name and returns a reference to connection, I could totally, I could totally just load, load a shared object file and, you know, basically have the, have it be like, okay, cool. The the SO file that you that you create needs to have some conventional name, and if I if it's a backend that I don't recognize, I'm gonna look for an SO file on 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 your dynamic loading path with uh, some name and call a function with some name, and that could totally work if if I could return reference to connection. That makes sense. I did not realize that those would be related answers, so now I'm pleased to discover that they ended up being. Yeah. Well, you know, like I was saying, right, the the there's a there's a reason that languages like Ruby and, and C sharp uh, and Python all do implement their objects basically the way trade objects in Rust work. Right. It makes sense. So then the other big thing that I remember being an issue back when we first talked and that I watched with some excitement for many reasons as it tracked forward was the custom derive and groundwork laid for procedural macro system in general. And I know that custom derive both for diesel and for Serde was a really big deal. So can you talk some about what the process of helping that come into being and being able to use it and use it on stable rust has looked like? Yeah. I mean, so don't, you know, let's not, let's not, uh, make diesel out to be bigger than it is. No. Serde was the yeah. main reason for that feature, <laughs> much more than diesel. Diesel always gets mentioned. It's always, you know, diesel and Serde right. use this, but you know, realistically Serde is is a hundred times bigger than diesel is. That said, you know, we definitely, as soon as it was available on nightly, implemented uh implemented uh, our code gen stuff on top of it and started reporting bugs and and how painful certain things were to use and what features were missing. 
probably the thing uh one of the biggest things that came out of uh both diesel both diesel and actually was just we we don't just use derives we also have attributes that that we use Mm -hmm. to um pass additional settings one other thing that came out of it um that that diesel was uh i think the first to to do but now there's an actual crate for it called proc macro hack (laughs) was we had two um two bang style macros that were implemented as procedural macros or three actually uh, and so basically the way we do it is we, this bang macro is just a regular rust macro. Uh, it's a regular rust macro that, um, generates an empty dummy struct with a derive on it. <laughs> now there's a huge limitation here though, which is that, uh, the only things that our macro can take as arguments now are things that you could stick in a, in a, uh, rust attribute. At the time, it was basically only string literals or identifiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I think it's any literal. So you can also have a literal number, which isn't useful to us right now, but maybe will be in the future. But so that was a big deal because one of these was called infer schema. Uh, and infer schema would go and connect your database at compile time and load up your uh, and look up what your database schema is. And then basically output this table macro that you would otherwise need to write yourself uh, for every table in your schema, in your database schema. And uh, usually you don't hard code your database URL right. in your code. You get it from an environment variable. So you would use either the env macro or the dot env macro. And you can no longer use either of those <clears throat> uh, because you can't stick a macro invocation inside of an attribute in Rust. So we worked around that by we support magic strings that start with env colon and dot env colon. <laughs> but, you know, that's and that's fine. That supports like those. This isn't one of those. And that, you know, helps a little bit, but ultimately people want to use all kinds of macros here. No, people aren't using concat. There probably somebody would might want to use concat, but realistically, like that actually was a case where we just need to support exactly those two things. It does suck because it means you couldn't write your own macro that does some, you know, one, one common request we got. We, we actually used to get this a lot and then they just stopped, people stopped asking for it, which is interesting. I'm trying to think of the last time I heard this feature request, because it used to be I would hear every week, and I haven't heard it in over a year, I think. Uh, people used to want a uh, Toml configuration. So rather than, uh, rather than like these macros taking your database URL as an argument, uh, they wanted, uh, they wanted it there to be like diesel.toml, and we would just define, like decide, here's how you, here's how you're going to store your configuration. And that's exactly why I didn't do it. Like, Environment variables were ne- are never are not a thing that's at all imposed in Diesel, but it is con- conventionally the way to do it. Right. But ultimately, everything just takes the URLs a string. Uh, so so it's it's very flexible. And back when we were using real procedural macros, you could totally write your own procedural macro that goes and loads some Toml config file and and uh, returns the string based on that. And you can't do that anymore. I mean, you could if you it would just have to still be an unstable procedural macro or you know do it in a build file. Um, but yeah, so that was the big, that was the biggest loss there. One of these days I'll write a build file, but I've managed to avoid it so far. <laughs> I mean, that was how you, that was how you used to use diesel on stable uh-huh. with uh syntax. Yep. I've only gotten to play with it a couple times, but I was very happy when the custom derive and whatnot landed so that stable was a lot easier to use at least. Oh yeah. I mean, chasing nightly just sucks. We still have to do it a little bit now because we use Clippy and we use Rust mm-hmm. format. And so we kind of have to chase Nightly on those. But um, at least we don't have to bump Nightly nearly as much as we used to. But it used to be like people would update their Nightly for whatever reason. They wanted to use whatever new feature was just implemented on Nightly. And if Diesel hadn't gone and updated to support that Nightly, 
which because you know we were using lib syntax which had was on was not stable right uh anytime any breaking change happened in uh in nightly you know diesel had to update or people just flat out couldn't use diesel with that version not fun well and then and then what really sucked too was right so then other libraries that were using that were nightly only like survey they would update and, and, and it's, it's not like you update backwards compatibly, right? When you, when you update like to uh, work with libsyn syntax from nightly 2016, 11, whatever, right? You don't still support the version from October. <laughs> no. So then Surday would update and then people couldn't use the new version of Surday with the current version of diesel unless diesel went and updated. So eventually uh, we got, we, you know, we just established the policy. We update nightly on the dates that Rust releases. And I tried to convince all of the other major <laughs> nightly only crates to do the same thing. So that just, we update every six weeks. Deal with it. Yeah. I'm glad that the ecosystem push got a lot of libraries out of nightly mode and into, and there's still a long way to go. But 2017 was a good year for getting a lot more things to be able to just run on stable and to just be able to have normal release cycles as 1.0s themselves. I was. Glad to see that that effort paid off. Yeah. I mean, custom derived, don't get me like, you know, certainly pushing to get custom derived out the door was huge, mm-hmm. um, but it also required compromises on the part of the, li- on the parts of the libraries. Like custom drive didn't do everything any of us quite mm-hmm. wanted. Uh, and we, and, and, you know, everything lost a little bit of functionality here and there, but it was a worthwhile trade off. So that's a wrap for part one. In part two, which you can expect to get in about three weeks, after a special bonus episode next week and an episode on Send and Sync in two weeks, we'll talk about getting to Diesel 1.0, including finding problems by writing docs. We talk a bit about Sember. We talk about the future of Diesel. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and look forward to sharing the next part with you. This month's $10 or more sponsors were Aaron Turon, Alexander Payne, Anthony Deschamps, Chris Palmer, Benam Estabode, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, David W. Allen, Guido Herman, Hans Fialemark, John Rudnick, Matt Rudder, Nathan Scully, Nick Stevens, Peter Tillemans, Olaf Leidinger, Olushei Sonaya, Rafe Levine, and Vesakaila Virta. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. If you're enjoying the show, please let others know about it. Best way, of course, is just to tell somebody in person who's interested in Rust. I also love it when people share on social media or rate and review it in whatever podcast directory you use. And of course, if you're feeling extra generous, you can always send some financial support for the show my way. Recurring contributions at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can send one-offs via any of a number of services I've listed on the show website. There, at newrustation.com, you can also find scripts and code samples for most teaching episodes, as well as transcripts for many of the interviews. I hope at some point to have a transcript for this interview up. And of course, there are full show notes for every episode. The show is on Twitter, at newrustation, and you can follow me there, at Chris Kreitcho. Do tweet at me. Hit me with news, hit me with topic ideas, you name it. Though, I'll give you a heads up, I already have episodes planned out through October this year. I am on the ball. You can also respond to the episodes in the threads on the Rust user forums, on Reddit, on Hacker News, or, and really, I say this all the time, but it's true, my favorite is just getting email from you. Say hello at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding.
and I got distracted thinking about bite order and I forgot the question I was going to ask. Dang it. <laughs> um, I'm assuming it was about ferrets. I'll have you know that most <laughs> ferrets in uh, the United States come from a place called Marshall's Farms. You can always tell of Marshall's Farms ferret because it has a little tattoo on its left ear. <laughs> that was not where I was going, but that's fascinating. <laughs> 